is freaking out this, this is Brock and Salk. Brock Ewart is my hero. Jay Buter just punched me in the kidney. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio. On Seattle Sports. So we're going to do you our manager. That really worked that way, Sherm. This is a show that has my name on it. It kind of does, though. Brought to you by Carter Volkswagen and Ballard. Now here are your hosts, Brock Ewart and Mike Salk. Hello! Let's go, everybody. Brock and Salk, Seattle Sports on 710seattlesports.com, Seattle Sports app. And the podcast platforms, all of them, everywhere. All right. Uh, my gosh, so much to get how to today. How late were you up to last night? How late? Yeah. Well, the Reading bigger about, question is how much time did I spend? That's really, I guess, what I'm asking. Just absolutely deep diving into everything going on with this golf merger. It is, a fa- it is in my view, arguably the most interesting sports story of our lifetime. Certainly, it's unique. We've never seen anything like this. Um, lifetime. Yeah, I, I, I can't come up with anything like this in my lifetime. A rival league just bought the PGA Tour. That's what happened yesterday. The PGA Tour was purchased by the Saudi investment fund. That's what happened. Backed against the wall and purchased? Yes. Okay. Technically, it's not a hostile takeover. That's not like the, the M&A definition of the hostile takeover. But that's what this was. In, in common parlance, right? Forgetting about, like, what it means to technically be hostily taken over. I mean, they agreed to the merger, which is really a purchase, but they didn't have a choice. What, what an absolutely fascinating story that could have ramifications so far beyond golf to everything we think about in the world of sports. So it was an awesome day yesterday, kind of going through it all, just interesting-wise for me. Throw onto that Seahawks practice yesterday. Maura was out there. She's going to give us some of her takeaways of what she saw at uh, 645 this morning. I will be down there today for a little while and probably tomorrow for the practice. And then the Mariners played what I would say was their most complete game in weeks. Satisfying. They didn't look like dog you-know-what. I mean, like they actually looked like a baseball team last night, which was great. They hit the ball. They had better at-bats. Logan was amazing. They played good defense. The bullpen came in and did its thing. Munoz was ridiculous. So, yeah, that was a uh, pretty darn good Mariner game last night, which I promise we will get to this morning as well. So let me... Um, let me kind of dig into this golf thing for a few minutes here. And, and, and even if you're not a huge golf fan, this isn't really a story about golf. It's a story about a few different things. One, what happened with the PGA Tour, Jay Monahan, their commissioner, and why yesterday they opted to, quote unquote, merge with the Saudi group. Well, there's one argument, which I think is very fair, which is that they chose money over morality. As 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 Brandel Shambly said yesterday, they chose profits over principles. That's a very fair way of looking at it, and I think I would say that it's probably very true. Uh, after the shock sort of ebbed away, I was hugely disappointed. I think this is one of the saddest days in the history of professional golf. Uh, I do believe that the governing bodies, the entities, the professional entities have sacrificed their principles for profit. It sure, sure seemed that way. Right. After after telling everybody for the last year that that Saudis were evil and, you know, it's blood money, this and that. At the end of the day, they end up turning around, uh, pulling a complete about face, 
stabbing everybody in the back, double crossing everybody and taking the money when it's all said and done. By the way, it was only a few months ago they were in Congress, in the Senate, lobbying Congress based on the idea that they shouldn't take the Saudi blood money. And now they're taking the money. So that's like the first step of all this. The problem is it gets so much bigger because maybe they had no choice. Maybe this is not what they wanted to do at all. Maybe it had very little to do with the money that they were being offered and had everything to do with the threat that was being made against them. I think it might have been a it's not technically a hostile takeover. I was talking to my friend who does some M&A law in New York, and he's like, well, it's not hostile because they agreed to it. Okay, fine. But a move that was made out of fear rather than out of greed. Does that make sense? Sure. A move that they made out of fear rather than simply out of greed. By the way, that doesn't preclude the idea that greed was involved also, but that there was fear as well. Fear, fear of two things. Okay, good. Fear of litigation. That as this thing dragged out in the courts, even though the PGA had been winning, that in discovery, right, when, when your everything becomes public, there was vulnerability there. And by the way, the nonstop cost of litigation, when you're when you are being attacked by a larger, wealthier entity, you have to worry about all of that. And then the other is just that maybe they had some financial issues that maybe their financial house wasn't as in order as it was as we've been led to believe. Rich Lerner, who I was watching yesterday, said he had heard from a source that the tour was in a bad financial position. Isn't that true of every league compared to the Saudi investment fund? That, that none of the le- as wealthy as all these leagues are, they don't have as much as the fund bringing in a billion dollars a day. Every league would be in a inferior financial position compared to yeah. this. Uh, Eamon Lynch, who I was watching yesterday on Golf Channel, called them two secretive organizations with legal exposure that they didn't want coming out during discovery. <laughs> I know that you guys think I'm nuts when I say that this could happen in other leagues, but I'm not the only one wondering about it. Mike Freeman wrote about it at USA Today. Uh, who else did I see? Bob Herrig, I think, speculated on it yesterday. Alan Shipnook as well. It is absolutely a possibility that if the Saudis, Justin, as you said yesterday, who have this as a goal to get more and more into sports, decide they want to st- set their sights, the eye of Sauron on another league or two, that they could absolutely go after them in the same way. By the way, here's another one. Will this deal go through? Might not. Biden could absolutely block this deal antitrust-wise and say, no, 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 that's a monopoly. Oh, true. Absolutely a possibility. Here's the thing. Even if that happens, the Saudis win. And Brandel had this perfectly yesterday. If it doesn't go through, guess what happens? All the best players leave for the money now because they've been double-crossed. So they all join live. And if it does go through, they win because they own the PGA Tour. So they've essentially found a way to checkmate Jay Monahan and the PGA Tour by, by, um, by, by putting them in a situation where either way, Live wins. Just played right in their hands. So you you know a, what a year ago when all this the nastiness started, Liv just sat back and was like, okay, play the game. <laughs> like you're going to lose. Absolutely. And now you're going to lose in the court of public. It's community just after this. a matter of how long it's going to take. And maybe 
the dumbest thing that happened was not that the PGA Tour, led by Jay Monahan, their commissioner, not that they fought, but that they took the strategy that they did trying to play the morality game. And by the way, convincing the players like Rory and others to play it with them, that they were always going to lose this battle. Always. This was always, this was a foregone conclusion from day one. And if they had played the victim rather than the high ground, they would have a lot easier time today being like, what are we going to do? Yeah, exactly. We got pushed into a corner. One last thing. And then I, you know, we'll move on. We'll come back to this maybe a couple of times over the course of the day. And I, I don't, I don't know whether this is this is important or not, but it seems relevant to me. For everybody saying Jay Monahan, Jay Monahan, Jay Monahan, he's the Roger Goodell, he's the public face, he's the guy who gets paid to look bad today. But I don't think this was his deal. Just like in the NBA. Just like in the NFL, just like in Major League Baseball, he's got to report to somebody. In his case, it's this council, an executive council made up of five independent executives who are all from basically big money firms, five players, and the last guy is the head of the PGA of America. This deal apparently was negotiated, and Dan Rappaport had this this morning on Barstool, by two of the members of that executive council. One of them is at a firm called Piper Sandler, which does M&A banking, mergers and acquisitions. The other is the head of their law firm. Guess what they specialize in? Mergers and acquisitions. I texted my buddy, as I said, who does mergers and acquisitions law about Wachtell, which is one of the the big firms, that big firm. He said they're a relatively small firm, but they're M&A experts. Highest profits per partner of any law firm by a factor of about 2x. It's fitting. I'm just saying, when stuff like this goes down at this level, guys, this wasn't about Jay Monahan, who was referred to as what? A useful idiot yesterday by Dan Wetzel and what is a must-read column. Yeah, absolutely true. And 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 does he look absolutely hypocritical? 100%, as do many others. It's ridiculous. Everyone has egg in their face. But I'm not sure it's entirely because of greed, although I'm sure that's a part of it. I think a lot of it has to do with vulnerability and just flat-out weakness getting beat by an organization that can box you in like a shark, and there's nowhere for you to go. You're backed into a corner. Right now it's golf. Won't surprise me if down the road there are other sports that have the exact same problem. So right now, what does it mean for the fan? Nothing? Right now? I mean, for the golf fan, it means, you know, some changes to the way the game is played, some positive, some negative, and you'll have to look yourself in the mirror and decide how you feel about it, which is going to stink. Do I want to know that this is happening? No. But, you know, I still buy gas. I still go to the Shell station. Like, you have to live your life. Like, there's only so much I can do, and, like, I don't like it, but the world continues to turn. Eventually, I think this could have gigantic ramifications on the sports world. We'll just have to wait and see. Okay. We'll be right back. Give you everything you need to know, including that gigantic Mariner win. Well, I can't say that. It wasn't a gigantic. You know what? X that out. <laughs> Strike okay. that from the record. It felt complete and big for me. It was a nice win. Put together about 20 more of those, and we'll have some gigantic <laughs> wins. It's next on Brock and Salt. Need to know. 15 minutes past every hour with Brock and Salk. Here's what you need to know. 
up first. Finally, that's the Mariner team that we were expecting to see ages ago. Most complete game they have played in weeks. Pitching, awesome. We'll get to Logan Gilbert in a moment. Defense, excellent. The at-bats, the approach, much improved. And oh, by the way, Julio has uh, woken up. Julio to lead off the inning with a swing and a drive. Deep to left field. Back she goes and goodbye baseball. Upper deck over the line score in left field. Julio Rodriguez with his 11th home run of the season. It was a blast. A high five from Manny around third. And it's now the Mariners three. And the Padres one. Holy smokes. What a blast off the bat of Julio. Yeah, that was just one of those balls where, oh my gosh, he left it in that spot. And Julio demolished that pitch. Don't throw it there. Whatever you do. Uh, Mention the better at bats. There were lots of them throughout the game, but J.P. Crawford embodied it, and Scott Service focused on him afterwards. J.P. Crawford in the fourth inning is out an 0-2 count. He somehow works a walk. After that, it forced the pitcher to throw 17 more pitches, and now the starter's out of the game in the fifth inning. Those little things like that that maybe not show up in a box score is a big deal, change the game. Absolutely true. I think J.P. saw 35 pitches or something like that in the game. A huge difference maker. And, oh, by the way... Logan Gilbert was dominant. Andres Munoz returned, and he was fantastic. Lots of good news there. Now, other news. Let's see. Uh, Munoz came back. Dylan Moore returned from the IL as well. Unfortunately, Munoz took the spot of Trevor Gott, who's pitched well, but also is going to need some time now on the IL. And Sam Haggerty heads to Tacoma. On the Marco Gonzalez front, sounds like he's going to need about a month to get back from what is a flexor strain in his left forearm. Good news is it's not elbow, it's not UCL, it's not Tommy John, but that's still a long month without a veteran, and it sounds like Brian Wu will remain in the rotation, at least for now. They'll get back to it for the matinee today, just a quick two-game series in San Diego, and then they head to Anaheim right afterwards, George Kirby and Michael Waka this afternoon. Here's the second thing you need to know. Day one, mandatory mini camp yesterday. The best news was that there was no real news out of Seahawks practice. Uh, everybody who'd been missing was there. Alton Robinson, Mario Edwards Jr., Jordan Brooks, and yes, Jamal Adams all there, though neither Brooks nor Adams was practicing. Quandre Diggs spoke afterwards about how great it was to have the whole gang together. I mean, this week is dope, you feel me? Because now everybody's here, you know what I mean? And everybody's running their own race, you know what I mean? So I know what's Ma- what Maul and JB are going through, you know, with injuries and rehabbing and stuff like that. So, you know, I talk to those guys and, you know, having Maul back, is, it's been awesome. You know what I mean? Um, you guys know, you guys know our relationship is different when 33's out there. And uh, it's just the energy, uh, a contagious, you know, thing that he brings. And it's one of those things that I can't wait to, he's back out there like playing, playing, because it's going to be fun. You know, I know he has big goals which he should yeah he's right about all of that yes everyone's on their own path and he knows that but also it's really nice when everybody's there together it's funny how that works uh lol good news and uh, we'll be over there again later today Derek hall signed his rookie deal got a whole bunch of guaranteed money up front the second round pick will join us tomorrow we're going to go over and tape that after the show this morning Here's the third thing you need to know. Yeah, I've been talking about it throughout the morning and probably will. It's, I believe, one of the most interesting, certainly, stories of our sports lifetime. The Live Tour essentially purchasing the PGA yesterday. It's called being called a, a merger. It's being called a joint effort. But really, when you dig into it, everyone who understands those sorts of things is saying that 
The Live Tour and the Saudi Investment Fund is essentially purchasing the PGA Tour. Why? Well, Brandel Chambly of the Golf Channel had some ideas. I think entanglement of the various business uh, entities and sponsors that the PGA Tour has that have Saudi money, PIF money in them. And I think it became increasingly difficult for the PGA Tour to disentangle themselves from that scrutiny and from that criticism. Essentially, the argument being that the tour had so much legal and financial exposure that the Saudi money was able to push them around and get whatever they wanted because they couldn't afford to go through the legal process any longer or the financial battle that they were going to eventually lose. It's almost like uh, storming a castle and just sitting outside and waiting for them to run out of food. Like, oh, yeah? Well, you don't have enough food in there, so we're just going to sit here and wait. And that's what they did. we don't look like the bad guys? Huh? And we don't look like the bad guys while doing it? Uh, Well... Sort of we are, but we didn't, we are the we bad didn't guys. take you hostage. We're just not going to do anything specifically bad other than hang out here and wait and box you in. And that's the situation. So it's going to be pretty crazy. It sounds like players are yelling at each other and yelling at the commissioner. And uh, it'll be a mess for a while, but eventually I'm sure they'll get it all sorted out. That is everything you need to know. We do that quarter past every hour here on the Brock and Salk show. Uh, yeah, it's a good game yesterday. Logan Gilbert was great. I didn't even really get to him much and need to know, but I thought that was one of his better performances of the year against a lineup that I know has had its problems this year. San Diego's not played good baseball, but man, you as you're going through it, there's so many good hitters, right? As, you, as you're weaving your way between Soto and... And Tatis and Machado and like everything that they've put together there. You're like, man, there really are some fantastic athletes on that team. And I thought Logan was as good as he's been with the fastball, with the Kurt, with the slider. And then that uh, new that new splitter that he throws. It was dynamic last night. So did you see I saw, Angie pointed it out on the postgame. Angie Menting that uh, when he left the game service, talked to him at the top step of the dugout and he like pointed to his heart it looked like he was you know good it would look like he was telling him that was like a that was a performance a gutsy performance or something you know observation and it was and you know who else had a good observation last night was aaron goldsmith that when he was facing the second baseman he was throwing 95 and then when tatis came out he was throwing 97 like yeah i got a little extra for the guys that I need to have the extra for. What a what a great performance. You're right, gutsy. And they needed it. They needed him to do that, give the offense time to kind of do its thing, and they score four runs, hit a couple home runs, and the bullpen takes yeah, it from and there. give the bullpen a break. Yeah, it's a good Mariner win. That's yeah. exactly what this team should be doing. All right, Albert Breer spoke to Geno Smith, who was in a completely different position than he was a year ago and had some great observations. He learned a lot about Geno and Pete. You'll hear it next, plus some of Morris' thoughts on what she saw at practice yesterday. Don't go anywhere, football fans. It's Brock and Salk, Seattle Sports on 710. This is Brock and Salk. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio. Back in mornings from 6 to 10. On Seattle Sports and the Seattle Sports app. What a strange morning we're having here. Mariners off last night. The PGA Tours merging back with Live Golf. Jay Monahan, the commissioner, is about to be on uh, CNBC, so we'll see if we can get some audio of that later. What a weird, weird day. And in the middle of it all, we've got Albert Breer joining us from Monday Morning Quarterback. Bert, you could have written about anybody this week with the start of mandatory minicamps, and you chose little old Geno Smith and the Seahawks. How about that? Yeah, well, I think it's a fascinating story, guys. And I remember talking to um, you know, I remember talking to Pete Carroll about this, um, you know, towards the end of last season and 
Um, you know, we were talking of, about examples of, you know, players that have had this sort of career arc, and it's hard to find them, and you have to go way back, you know. But, um, you know, I think the ideal is this plays out like Rich Gannon did, you know, a generation ago, or like Jim Plunkett once did, you know, where, you know, a guy has an opportunity early in his career, it doesn't work out, he becomes a backup for a while, and then reemerges later. And, um, you know, really makes it work, you know, and um, I, I think, you know, it's what's interesting about it is that Gino always saw it coming. And, you know, I know you guys have probably been around him enough to see like the, the confidence he has in himself. Um, and he really did it the right way. And, you know, I think um, if I'm a Seahawks fan and I look at the way he spent his off season, I think that makes it doubly interesting because, you know, he's, Still doing all the things that put him in position to, to have the year that he had last year. Was it still surreal at times, Bert? Did you still find yourself like, am I really going to write this about <laughs> yeah. Geno Smith? I, I think because Salk yeah, and I. You, be- yeah, go ahead. It, it, it's weird because, like, you like the last, like, our, I guess our last big memory of him before this was was him getting, you know, him getting, like, like taking a roundhouse in the Jets locker room um, in, like, whatever it was, 2015. Um, you know, and I think it, like, I, I would say like it, it takes, you know, a certain mental toughness, a certain discipline to, to be able to come back from something like that. Like, and, and look, like, I think it's a good um, lesson too on the fact that you never live down where you're drafted, you know, guys who are first round picks, um, generally get chance after chance after chance, right? Like Sam Darnold, for example, got a second chance in Carolina, Baker Mayfield got a second chance in Carolina. Um, you know, Josh Rosen got a second chance in Miami um, where those guys got a shot to be starting quarterbacks again, you know, and, you know, Gino, by virtue of where he was drafted going in the second round, um, wasn't going to just, you know, get that opportunity to start automatically somewhere else, you know, and somebody trying to perform like a reclamation project on him. And so, you know, I think for a guy like that, who's, you know, drafted in the second round, it actually probably takes more discipline because you don't know when that next shot's going to come and you have to be ready for it when it does come. And, um, you know, very clearly he was, he was ready for his opportunity when it came along. What did you learn in talking to him? I mean, I, I just think like the, the drive, you know, I guess that was the main thing. Like I, I, um, you know, like the whole premise for the story, like I got on the phone with him and I, I, I sort of didn't know where it would go. Um, and, you know, the first thing I did was I, I, you know, I said to him, like, Gino, I, I want to kind of like lay out your off season and how you're planning on building on all of this. And so, like, let's go back to um, you guys getting eliminated by the Niners in the playoffs. Um, I'm assuming you take some, you took some time to decompress after that and kind of take stock of everything. And he stopped me. He's like, No, I didn't. You know, and he was the only player, um, I think, or one of the only players that stayed behind in Seattle. You know, after they lost the playoffs, outside of the guys who are rehabbing from injuries, um, and wanted to get a couple of weeks in with the strength coaches to, you know, rework, um, you know, some things with his core and everything else, and then from there it was right into throwing. And so, you know, I think where a lot of players would take that time to decompress, he wanted to build on the momentum that 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 he had, um, you know, that, that that he had built over the course of his you know first full season starting, and I think it was eight years. And, um, and then, you know, I, I think, you know, you sort of look at, you know, how that's rubbed off on some of his teammates. There's a lot of reasons to be optimistic um, about where he's going. And, you know, I think part of it too is the group the Seahawks come have coming back. And, 
you know, God, like that 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 group of second year players that look like they might be the foundation for a lot of things going forward. Could you write this piece for the Monday Morning Quarterback and spend all the time you did researching it and talking to all the people involved in it without associating Russell Wilson? <laughs> it's hard not to, right? I guess um, I, they were careful. I mean, I, the people I talked to were careful, but I mean, like, look, like there's there's definitely a um, I would say a juxtaposition. You know, I. I, like, I thought what was so interesting about it, Brock, was, I, I mean, did you guys know about all this work he was doing? No, right? Well, like, I, like, I, I mean, mean I, I had seen some of the videos from his production company that he carried around to all. Oh, right. I'm sorry. He didn't do any of that. That's, no, he goes that's, north to south. Empire. <laughs> sorry, that's a different quarterback. You know what? I got confused on that. That's my bad. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, though, right? Like, is like, I was surprised about all this. I hadn't heard about all this because Gina didn't care to tell anybody, right? And, like, if Russ was doing this, like, we would have gotten a video from the Seahawks white room in January, right? Like, some, like, highly produced video. And I look like everybody does things their own way. But I I think it's sort of interesting. And I I think it probably, like, honestly, guys, like, probably goes a long way in explaining why his teammates have such great respect for him, you know, because he's not putting himself out front publicly of all these things. But privately, he's very much leading the way. You know, and um, so I, you know, again, like I, I don't know whether or not he's going to be the quarterback of the Seahawks for the next five years, um, but, you know, I, I think he's doing a lot of the right things to put him in position to have that shot. One of the lines that that really stuck with me, and I sat there thinking, processing it, and whether or not it was true or, or if I, am I of that opinion, it was his QB coach who obviously is biased, but he's a pretty renowned guy that works with a lot of different quarterbacks and ascending quarterbacks. And he said, if Geno Smith was 24, the NFL world would view him as a top five quarterback. Do you yeah. agree with that? I mean, I, I, I put the, that question to Quincy because I thought, I do think like a lot of these things, Brock, are, um, are colored by perception, right? And I mean, just forget the ranking. Like, how would you guys look at Gino if he was part of that draft class? Like, like so let's just say, like, instead of him being wherever thirty-one years old last year, let's like let's say he's part of that draft class. How do you look at the way he played? Oh, right. I mean, without your preconceived notions, right? You know what I mean. Hard not to say that this draft class was as good as any they'd ever, you know, anyone had ever had to be on that list. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so like that's the thing is, I think a lot of this is colored by perception and. And, and, and of course it's different, you know, because if you've got a quarterback who's 23 years old, then, you know, you've got potentially 15 years of runway with the guy. So you don't have that. But, I mean, you know, like the dynamics have changed at that position. You can't hit them the same way you used to be able to hit them. Sports science has certainly made advances. So, you know, I, I don't see why you wouldn't look at a guy who's going to be 32, I believe, um, as somebody who could be a quarterback for the next five or six years and be, you know, very much like what Alex Smith was in Kansas City, right? Like where Alex Smith got there with Andy Reid and gave them five really good years and bridged them to Patrick Mahomes, you know, and they made the playoffs consistently and allowed them to build the team up. Like, you know, and I I think, you know, if you do go back and you look at it and you look at the circumstances he was under in New York, they weren't great, you know? Like, I mean, I, I just... You know, and I, I think that that's something that gets lost a lot, too. Like, there are a lot of young quarterbacks that, you know, through no fault of their own, go through a lot of bad circumstances. Like, the the, 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 the GM and coach that drafted Geno, like, and if you guys really want to go back and look at this, there was, like, enormous disagreement over whether to play him between the head coach and general manager. And then both those guys wound up getting fired, and the new guys come in, and they inherit him, 
and then the punch happens and then you know Ryan Fitzpatrick plays great I mean it like it if you go back and you look at it like the pathway to Gino making it in New York was actually pretty narrow you know and he didn't make it and so like I just think like a lot of times like we look perception can color these things and we don't look at each guy's circumstances, you know? Um, I actually kind of like went back and looked at this, uh, like, like in a column that's going up today. And, um, you know, in the 1920 and 21 draft classes, 12 quarterbacks were drafted in the first round. So in those three classes, right, 12 quarterbacks drafted in the first round. There's only one of those 12. And this is young guys who still has the same head coach and offensive coordinator he did when he was drafted, and that's Joe Burrow. He's the only one. Um, so, you know, a lot of times circumstances can affect where these guys go. Talking to Albert Breer uh, here on Seattle Sports, he wrote about uh, Geno Smith. And, and while this is a story about Geno Smith, to me, the whole Geno Smith story is also about Pete Carroll. And, you know, we were talking a little bit about this earlier. What did I learn last year? That Pete wasn't holding Russell Wilson back. In fact, he was bringing out the best in Russell Wilson and and maybe mm-hmm. even finding ways to minimize Russell's worst tendencies. And yep. a year later, I think I have to say he's done the same with Gino, that he has found a way to bring out his best qualities. And isn't that exactly what a head coach is supposed to do with his best players? Yeah, yeah. And I think, like, Gino's in a better position to appreciate the opportunity that's in front of him now and value the opportunity that's in front of him. I mean, I think one thing about Russ, he became such a big star so quickly, you know what I mean? Like all that happened so fast. And I think that that definitely had an effect on it. You know, all of a sudden you've got all these opportunities in front of you. Like Gino, like I think Gino's going to have a better appreciation of what's in front of them, better perspective, you know, and, and certainly they got the most out of them. Yeah. I mean, like how differently do we look at Shane Waldron now than we did last year? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think you can look at like a lot of people in that building a lot di- differently. And, you know, I've always thought like Pete's got a really good sense for people, like really, really great emotional intelligence, right? Like, so he understands what makes people tick, how to get the most out of people. And I think schematically too, you know, you see some of the things that they were able to do for Gino to, to, to get him going sort of dovetails with, I think, the fact that, like, they knew what was best for Russ all along. And when Russ finally got what he wanted, which, like, play me like I'm Peyton Manning, play me like I'm Tom Brady, how did that look, right? Like, Denver gave him what he wanted. And, and now, you know, a year later, Sean Payton's coming in there, and Sean Payton's going to be hard on him. And Sean Payton's not going to do things the way that Russell Wilson is, you know, like, like he's not going to, he's not going to follow directions on the way to run his offense, you know? So um, I think it's a, it's a great lesson in getting the most out of players. And even to some degree with some quarterbacks, like the way they want to do things isn't always what's best for them or their skill set. Uh, last thing for me here, Bert, if you had to invest uh, and buy stock <clears throat> into Russ or Gino in 2023, who are you invested in? <laughs> a tough question <laughs> I, I i would say gino because i think gino's like in a, in a in in a more stable situation right now and the team is more invested in him and that sounds weird because russell's got the huge contract and the seahawks can get out of this contract after a year and the, the the broncos are would have a really hard time getting out of that contract after this year i would not ignore the signing of jared stidham in, in denver and i know that sounds crazy but they gave him five million dollars a year and I think to some degree for Sean Payton, like Jared Stidham is going to be like a baseline. Like, look what I can do with Jared Stidham, 
right? Like in preseason games and practice, look what I can do with Jared Stidham. So you be better, you better be on it, Russell. Cause if you don't, I'm not afraid to walk away from you, you know? Um, and again, I know it sounds crazy because Jared Stidham has been a backup for his four years in the league, but I do think that that was kind of an under the radar signing that should not be ignored. Um, and I think that like, you know, there's, I, I think and you've seen it since the start. I mean, you saw a look on Sean Payton's face when he said whatever it was, um, like that he's not familiar with uh, with the idea of the quarterback having an office in the building, right? Um, you know, I, I think there's there's definitely a new sheriff there in Denver, and you know, I think it's Sean Payton's show there. Where I think in in um in 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 in, in Seattle, there's much more of a partnership between team and player at wow. this point, which again sounds wild. If you think if I had told you that a year ago, you would have you know you would never have me on again, right? Like that that would happen. But uh, but but that's the way it's played out. Don't be silly. I'm sure you've said sillier things in your life than. And we would have I mean, you on. Of course, we'd I mean, have yeah, you I on. Have, I have I have I have sworn on. <laughs> right, that's true. So. Yeah. <laughs> so might as well be Florida. I think I heard from you at some point. Hey, none of this is wilder than whatever the heck is going on in golf today. So you know, it's uh, it's yeah, how about that? Like, so does that mean like the PGA Tour is like you know? Full partners with the Saudi government. It, it kind of wild. feels that way. And we're just learning now. I was going to talk about it in a little later. That they didn't tell any of the players. So Jay Monahan's going to go meet with all of the tour players at I think four o'clock Eastern today. They're going to be so mad. Oh, after- I mean, so what happens? Like, so, all right. So, like, obviously, like, Phil, like, makes out like a bandit here, right? Like, and all those guys that took the money, like, or like Tiger and like and, Rory, and are they just like SOL? I mean, those guys <laughs> turned down hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, of dollars out of out of loyalty, yes, and yeah. morality, yes. And instead, oh my gosh, what yeah. an at, like it's a double yeah, like, cross, man! Like, yep. Wow, yep. what a crazy situation! All right, hey buddy, seriously appreciate it. We told everybody, we'll tell them again. A great article on uh, on Geno Smith, worth the read. He leads Monday morning quarterback as we head over to mandatory minicamp for the first time today. Thanks, man. We appreciate it. All right, great. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. All right, there's Albert Breer, Monday morning quarterback, and uh, yeah, worth your time. Go uh, go read that column that he wrote and learn a little bit more about Geno Smith, Pete Carroll, and the Seahawks. Uh, they did start mandatory minicamp yesterday. I wasn't able to get over there yesterday. I'll try to get. I'll be a part of practice today because we're going over to interview uh, Derek uh, Hall, which I'm excited about. I hope there's enough room for both of us in that studio because he is <laughs> a gigantic person. Uh, and then uh, should be there Thursday as well because they get an early practice. More. You were there yesterday. What'd you say? You want to get another picture of you, like with Mike Morris? No, no, this is (laughs) ridiculous. Why do I have to interview all the huge guys, right? Who have we done? Those are the ones you ask for. You're you're enamored with them. I ask for small players too, I think. (laughs) How many small players are there? Not many. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it's been Jaron well, Reed. Derek Reed did go on with Wyman and Bob yesterday. He was good, too. Left go in. So, yeah, he's one of the ones. That I know. And he was good. He was. But Both what? Kobe Bryant went on Bump and Stacey yesterday. It was they were good. great interviews. Yeah. Yeah. I have, yeah. No, we had Jaron Reed, gigantic human. Mm-hmm. And Mike Morris, even bigger human. And now Derek Hall, who's also just gigantic human. So, yeah, that uh, seems to be my lot in life. What did you see <laughs> over there yesterday? Uh, well, the, one of the first things I noticed was that Alton Robinson was there, which I was like, oh, that's good. Because honestly, after Pete's answer last week, I'll play for you guys again here. Like, mm. I thought maybe they would just had lost contact with him. Didn't know where he was. Like this a was ship so that weird. had dropped off radar. Um, 
a little bit of an unknown. Yeah, I, I don't know a lot about that right now. Um, it has been uh, it's been a, a long, hard road for him. I know that. I, I don't really have much else on that. Yeah, that is a weird answer. So, I mean, from what I heard, John Boyle went on with uh, Wyman and Bob yesterday, too, and he just said that, like, when he initially hurt himself last year, I think they thought it was going to be a shorter deal, and then something else happened, and it has just been kind of like a mysterious, lengthy hmm. um, return from injury. So, um, yeah, still a little bit of mystery what's going on there, but good to see that he is with the team. <laughs> He's not floating out in the ether. I wasn't sure what that answer meant. It was yeah. so weird. All right. So he was out there and he was practicing. He, uh, doing some light drills. I'm not okay. sure he did the full. Yeah. Um, and good to see Mario Edwards Jr. because we have not seen him yet. Yep. New um, defensive and defensive tackle kind of hybrid guy. So, yes, he was yeah. not there earlier, was dealing with some he's family a, stuff. He's a big guy, too. Um, and obviously, Brooks and Adams were there. Okay. Uh, this is the second straight practice where um, I have not been able to spot. And the other one was an OTA. Obviously, this is mandatory. I have not been able to spot uh, the rookie guard, Anthony Bradford. Hmm. Um, I did ask and he was told he was present. So I don't know if he's got some treatment that he needs going on or mm. what. Apparently he was in the building, but okay. I have not seen so him on there. the practice field like the last skipping, two times. But he hasn't been out there. So um, I just I hope everything's okay there. I mean, I mean, the couple times that I have seen him practicing with the lineman, he looks powerful. I really thought he w- had a chance to compete. Yeah, he's one out. of those guys where, I mean, obviously you hope it's not injury-related, but you would assume that if that's mm-hmm. the case, it's just he's got some sort of an injury. And I wonder if that's one of those soft tissue things that seem to drive Pete crazy this time of year as guys, and sometimes especially big guys like that, realize just how much harder it is to be in the NFL and what Maybe, that looks but like. but generally so. if it's like a hamstring or something, they they come out and at least watch. Right. It's you see weird. them kind of walking around. I don't, don't, I don't, don't want to speculate, but I just, mm. yeah, have All not right. seen him on the field the last two practices. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll monitor that. We'll, I'll be looking for <laughs> him today of a big uh, number 70 number 70 yes big dude <laughs> um also uh, this happened before i got there but i heard that devin witherspoon got a couple of reps at nickel yesterday oh interesting um so yeah and i guess he does have experience there in college um, I mean, he said he was excited about possibly playing a little there. So basically what I would think is, is that make, first of all, that makes some sense, right? He's not a huge guy, right? And, and often you see that at nickel. I would think that essentially what you're deciding there is okay. On first and second down or normal downs, right? You've got him on one side and you got Tariq Woolen on the other. When you're going to go to nickel, you've got to bring in one more player. Do you want to bring in Kobe Bryant and let him play nickel and keep Witherspoon where he is? Or do you want to bring in your other starter last year, Mike Jackson, put him on the other uh, on the other side and move Witherspoon inside to nickel and really turn Kobe into more of a, you know, a dime player? I think that's a really legitimate question. And, and if it's a real competition, that opens you up with a lot more flexibility. So I like that. I think that makes perfect sense to mm-hmm. me. And Kobe has been sidelined with a little something, too. He's been out there, but uh, not fully participating. So maybe that is another reason why they decided, like, hey, let's just get him some reps here. Makes sense. Um, but I, I do like seeing um, every time I see Kobe Bryant, I feel like he's either with Quandre or Bobby or both. And I think it's really smart of him to ingratiate himself with them and learn everything that he can. And they also seem to like him and welcome him. He seems like a smart kid. I mean, just remember we interviewed him last year and talked to him and just sort of everything we've heard about him. He seems mm-hmm. like the kind of guy who wants to be a leader, wants to learn, wants to listen, et cetera. So that that doesn't surprise me at all. That that seems yeah. like a, a like an absolute something we should have just expected. That makes sense. I remember seeing a quote from his college coach when he got drafted just that he basically was their team, that he mm-hmm. was a huge leader there. So, yeah, that doesn't surprise me either. And, I mean, he had two – I think we, we might forget 
playing the role that he was playing, and then he had two sacks and four forced fumbles last yep. year. Yep, he had so a knack for the ball. I'm excited to see what he can grow into. Um, also, notice yesterday after practice, um, they kind of break off into groups, and some some guys still keep doing cert- working on certain things. And as I was uh, headed back into the media room, uh, I saw that Geno Smith and Drew Locke were still out there, and I was trying to figure out what they were working on. And then I realized that they were it was mostly shotgun snaps with the center. So huh. it makes sense to me when you've got a lot of new faces there, and you're trying to figure out who's going to be your starter that. Might want some extra reps. Wow, seems like that's some value of actually being there together in person. Interesting. So they were able to kind of work <laughs> on some of those things and that. things, some of the small things that just sort of help make a team better. How did Drew Locke look, by the way? Because it was he looked better yesterday. Good. Yeah. Good. That was one of the things I was hoping for, and I, I you know, like he was getting the ball out a little quicker. Um, I think <sighs> he threw one pick, but also had a, a nice touchdown. I think the team posted it to Will Disley. I just, but it looked like he was in command of what was because that was the problem when yeah. we were watching last week was like everything was fine. And all of a sudden Drew Locke would come in and just like dragged and the tempo went away and it's everything just sort of seemed off. I, he can he can throw a pick or two in practice. I'm not here to kill Drew Locke. I promise. In fact, I actually have some legitimate like belief that that he may have some success at some point in the near future. But I was really hoping he would have some of that command. So to hear you say that he had it. That's really I feel great. like he sped it up a little yesterday. Yeah. Good. And then the last thing I know is that, you know, both Bobby and, well, Quandre was talking and Bobby just started, what, kind of uh, harassing him during their yeah. uh, during his media session. I like this sort of talk, Quandre talking through what it was about Bobby uh, being gone that helped him. I think it gave me more gray hair. Yeah, he was asked, I'm sorry, <laughs> I should say, he was asked whether Bobby being gone helped him grow as a leader. I think it gave me more gray hair. I'll say that, but... <laughs> But it definitely did, you know, open my eyes to, as a captain, you know, people look at you different and expect you to do different things. And He went on from there, but I think you get the point. Like, it opened up a vacuum a little bit last year. He stepped up to fill that vacuum, and now Bobby's going to come back into it. That's good. That's a good thing. Yeah. That That's a lot of positive leadership. And when he says that joke about gray hair, what it tells me is they needed more. And good on them for bringing back Bobby Wagner and letting him help that. I mean, assuming he can still do it on the field, and I think he can, especially if he's got enough help in front of him, I like it. I like the direction they're going there. Thank you, Maura. We'll uh, be over there, as I said, later today and give you some more observations tomorrow. Brock will be in here next. I promise it's working, and Brock will be here. we got to talk through this Mariners thing. we still got lots of live golf to discuss. Local PGA golfer Andre Gonzalez is going to join us at 730. It's Brock and Salk, Sales Sports on 710.